sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. And of course, Kristen was back with us, uh, was about a month ago, wasn't it, Kristen? It was, yeah, it was about a month ago. I had so much fun, I, I wanted to come back. <laughs> no, and we're, we're glad to have you back. And not only that, not only are you back today, but you're actually going to be running the show. So, uh... <laughs> I will, I will just shut up and sit back and then let you uh, go to it. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I don't know that I can do as great a job as you normally do, but I'll, I'll do my very, very best. There was plenty to talk about this week, um, as, as you know, Mike, and as I'm sure everybody else knows. Um, obviously, the first thing that was sort of on everybody's minds and, and you know, kept popping up on everybody's news feed uh, this week was the budget deal. Um, of course, uh, as most of you know, a $333 billion budget deal was signed uh, yesterday. Uh, the bill passed easily. It passed with an 83 to 16 vote in the Senate and a 300 to 128 vote in the House, uh, which, you know, shocked really nobody. Um, and of course, yesterday, a state of emergency was declared uh, regarding border funding um, as President Trump hopes to free up funds to construct a barrier. So I guess we could start talking about that because it's a pretty big topic. Yeah, it sure is. Um, well, you know, at first I have to say every once in a while, it's nice to be able to point out that that I called something correctly. Uh, when, <laughs> when, when the first shutdown began, I think I was doing the show with Jay and I said, I don't see any other way out for the president but to declare a national emergency. And so I unfortunately, uh, I was right about that. I, I would have rather have not been right about that. But uh, to me, it seems like there were really two issues here, I guess. Uh, uh, number one, can the president within, is he, is he within his powers to declare a national emergency? And then secondly, if so, is he within his powers to build a wall based on that declaration? And it seems to me that both of these are still very much open questions. Um, but, but I think before even the legalities of it, I, you know, it seems to me that just on a common sense sort of understanding of the term, this is no a national emergency. I mean, legal immigration is way down from where it was in the early to mid 2000s. Drug seizures are not up at all significantly. And and even the president himself said, well, I didn't have to do this, but uh, this would just this was just faster. So. And again, it seems to me that it's hard to argue that this is a national emergency in the sense in keeping with the spirit of the law. Now, the letter of the law is a different thing, but I was just wondering, do you think that this is a a, a true national emergency? You know, I do think that it is uh, a national emergency. Um, I had a very interesting discussion um, actually with my sister-in-law. She was visiting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she lives in Los Angeles. Uh, my, my husband's family from Los Angeles. And she, you know, has a lot of opinions about, you know, this, uh, this emergency on the border, so to speak. And she said that it's not something she sees the effects of. Um, she made sort of a moral argument against it. Um, my take on it was that I, I think it is a, 
I think it is emerg an emergency that's brewing, so to speak. So to speak, um, I, I believe that it's a fiscal emergency. Um, the burden that comes with people crossing the border illegally is immense. And while I don't see as much of a problem, I, I live in South Florida, um, and our I guess we're not on at the forefront of this emergency, sort of seeing you know the burden on society. Um, children of illegal immigrants, um, you know, flooding into public schools, people who are, you know, taking advantage of the system, maybe using uh, medical care, trying to, you know, make money here in the United States and send, sending it back. I think that it could become a fiscal emergency down the road. That was sort of my take. I had an economic argument. I choose not to make the moral argument because I, I don't think that it holds a lot of water, especially as somebody on the right. I think that um, rather than, you know, making that argument, I choose to stick to a more fiscal argument. So I do see this becoming an emergency. I think it's something that, you know, I think we're already in over our heads economically when it comes to this. But I think down the road, it could become much, much worse. I guess that's sort of my take on it. OK, well, yeah, I, I don't disagree with your description of the problem, I guess that maybe and maybe it's a semantic thing in terms of what the word emergency means. But right. I think legally, uh, you know, then that's the first question. You know, uh, whether or not you think that there's an emergency or not in in whatever you know kind of common sense or dictionary definition you want. It seems to me that based on the language in the statute, that the president is within his rights to declare uh, a national emergency. Now, I, I would argue that that totally goes against the spirit of the statute, but the actual letter of the law, I think that he probably has a, a, a pretty good case. And it also seems to me that, you know, a provision was built into this law where if Congress believes that the president is not within his rights and it is a fake emergency, essentially, that Congress has a way to deal with that by passing a resolution against it. And then if the president vetoes it, which he certainly would, they can override that with a with a two thirds with a two thirds majority, which I don't necessarily think they would they would have. But but to me, it seems pretty clear what's going on here is that is that the president asked for a certain amount of money for his wall and Congress said, no, we're not going to give that to you. And so then the president basically needed to find a workaround to subvert the, I would argue, the constitutional balance of powers. And so he latched on to this emergency thing. I mean, isn't it sort of troubling, I guess, that the fact that the president, in his own words, said, I didn't have to declare an emergency, which would suggest an emergency you don't have to declare, I would think sort of by definition is not actually an emergency, but I did it because it was faster. I mean, and the Constitution is pretty clear about who has the power of the purse. It's not the president. It's Congress. And, and to me, this is a this is a huge separation of powers issue and an immense executive overreach, something that a lot of folks pointed out this week that Donald Trump himself had major problems with when when President Obama was doing it. But all of a sudden now, when he's in the big chair in the Oval Office, it's a different story. Right. Well, you know. I did a lot of research about where uh, President Trump thought that he was going to get the money from or where he I should say where he expects to get that. I believe it's eight billion dollars mm -hmm. to construct this to, to construct this barrier. 
And I was very uh, surprised to find out that only um, a portion of that about, I think it was a little less than $1.4 billion of $8 billion he was expecting to get from congressional legislation. I thought that that number would be higher. Um, He's, you know, he's expecting a lot of that money to come from the Department of Defense. Um, their counter drug initiatives. He's expecting a lot of that money to come from uh, the, almost half of that money to come from the Pentagon, uh, you know, different construction funds, things like that. Some of it would come from the Treasury Department. I believe there are a few other, you know, sources for that money, at least, you know, what he's expecting. So I think maybe I took that. Well, I don't really have to declare a state of emergency. I'm just doing it, you know, to get it done faster. I think he's he's trying to if if i had to take a guess at what he's trying to do i think he's trying to um appease his base you know he knows that without this wall he's he may not get reelected you know i i made that point the last time i was on the show and and i think it's i think it's a good point to make um but i also think that he's trying to he's 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 fully expecting a fight and he knows that he's going to get much less than half of that funding from Congress. And so I think he's looking for other sources. Um, I do think it would be easier for him this way. I don't know. And and I and I do I do agree with you that, you know, just a few years ago, he was I mean, just blasting President Obama um, for lacking fiscal discipline. I mean, you know, uh, last year, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 was passed, and that was largely in response to uh, a lot of the things that President Obama was doing. Sort of, you know, he what did he say? I have a phone, a pen, and a phone. Um, and I and I think that you know this is you know, a lot of people are questioning President Trump's behavior here. Basically, is he doing the same thing? Is he falling into the same trap? I don't know. Uh, I don't know yet. I was critical of President Obama's um, overreach and his lack of fiscal discipline and. The jury's out on whether or not President Trump is is falling into the same trap. I, you know. Well, I, 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 I certainly agree with the reasoning, but I totally disagree with whether or not the jury's out. I mean, I think the jury came back with a with a verdict <laughs> on that right away, and President Trump is 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 making making President Obama look like an amateur, look like a piker when it comes to sort of executive overreach, and and, and I think it's because you know even. Even President Obama and past presidents, while they pushed the borders, there were still some concern about what the norms of behavior were. And I think President Trump just doesn't care about norms of behavior. I don't think he cares about a wall even. It doesn't matter to him, I don't think, one little bit if a wall actually gets built. What matters to him is 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 that he's loved by his base. And if that means a wall, that's fine. But I I, I I still believe that in my heart of hearts that President Trump has has no loves, no principles, no concerns that do not direct, directly relate to the to the greatness of Donald J. Trump. And that to me, whether we're talking about a conservative or a liberal, is a deeply, deeply troubling thing. But, you know, more to the the, the, the statutory authority authority here in the second part, it seems to me that based on the research that I've done, that, you know, there are there are two basic grounds that he could based his building project on, one being that the Secretary of Defense is allowed to start a military program once there's a declaration of emergency. If that's needed to support the armed forces, that seems to be pretty shaky ground about a border wall. There's not a whole lot of support the armed forces there. Uh, And the second thing as well, is that essential to the national defense? That to me, I think this is certainly going to be held up for quite a bit of time, not only because of that, because even if 
It passes through that. Then there's the issue of taking all these public lands through eminent domain, which people are going to fight as well. So you could easily picture this basically just running out the clock. And let's say President Trump isn't reelected, then not a single inch of extra wall may end up getting built because I would argue it's never really been about the wall for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I, I would be inclined to agree with you for a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I, I am a registered Republican and, and I've been a Republican activist for a long time, but I make no secret about the fact that I tend to lean a little libertarian. So the words eminent domain, uh-huh. you know, send a shiver down <laughs> my spine. And I would say that that's been kind of my calling card from day one with this whole project is how are you going to get those lands? You know, you're talking about private lands along the Rio Grande, um, down by Calexico. A lot of this land is farmland. This is a lot of this land is privately owned land that's been in families for centuries. Um, some of it is owned by uh, state governments. So this would be a very, very, very difficult process. But to sort of piggyback on what you were saying about his aim to get reelected again. I I said this the last time that uh, I was on the politics guys, but I really believe that again, I'm, I'm very jaded and I'm a skeptic of all politicians. And I believe that Donald Trump uh, and, and every other politician does things with one eye on being reelected. This is their ultimate aim. And he made a, a very interesting statement yesterday about already having done so much for the wall in 2020. I mean, he's just, I I believe that he, along with everybody else who's, you know, plans to run for office again, he's got one eye on re-election, but he's just maybe a lot more obvious about it. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot more transparent to that end. And I I think that he believes, I, I agree with you that whether or not the wall gets built is a whole other thing. It's how people perceive that, you know, he's, he's tackled this issue. Has he made headway? Um, my guess is that when the, you know, when re-election time draws a bit more near, um, you know, he will point to this and say, look what I've done. I've made all this headway. I cleared a path for this wall to be built and the Democrats have obstructed it. And I mean, this is no different from this is a, a, a page in his playbook. Yeah. But I agree with you. I think that that's what this is really all about. Yeah, but, and, you know, I agree with that, but I think it's actually a really bad strategy when when I look back at 2016, I mean, uh, Donald Trump ekes out a victory over uh, quite possibly the most unlikable uh, Democratic opponent, regardless of what you think about her as a person or her policies, you know, uh, had huge unfavorables. And and it's there's a very good chance that whoever the Democrats nominate, they're not going to have as much baggage and they're not going to be as unlikable to so many people as Hillary Clinton was. And so a strategy of doubling down on your base and pushing away even more moderates, I, you know, I think that's a strategy that's, that's doomed to fail. And I'm, actually, I'm okay with that. I mean, if that's a strategy he wants. If there's no wall and no Donald Trump come, come January of 2021, I'm on board with that strategy. Um, but, but, you know, I don't even know if there is, if it will get to that point or if there might actually be a wall, because when I think about, for instance, the Supreme Court, you know, um, uh, Donald Trump has nominated and, and had confirmed two justices who are very much inclined to take a charitable, uh, forgiving view toward executive power, executive authority. And I think, you know, that was a very conscious choice on his path. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that 
when the, and it will get to the Supreme Court, when the issue of whether or not the president can declare an emergency gets to the court, I'm pretty sure they're going to say, yeah, as to the building authority, I think we need a little more of the details to kind of get a sense of what the challenges are. But I wouldn't be surprised, even in that case, if a slim majority in a decision that I probably will wholly disagree with uh, decided that there was the authority, uh, but whether or not actually, you know, any sort of bricks or whatever, whatever will be laid that needs to be laid for that by 2021, uh, I don't know. That would be uh, that would be a pretty uh, a tough stra- uh, tough uh, work schedule, I guess. Yes, I I would agree with you. I'm not sure that we will ever actually see bricks and mortar. Yeah. Or- you know, steal the big, beautiful wall with the big, beautiful door. I'm not sure that we'll ever see that. Uh, definitely not in the next couple of years. But, um, you yeah. know, it sh- it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that. The, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, of course, Mitch McConnell came out and said, said, you know, he supports the president's declaration on this. But previously, Mitch McConnell and a number, I'm not picking on Mitch. I pick, as, as listeners know, I, I pick on Mitch McConnell all the time. I just like him more than Donald Trump because he should know better. But anyway, um whole different story. But it, it seems to me that Mitch McConnell and a number of other Republicans are in kind of a, a weird situation here because they have for a long time pushed hard against executive overreach. And, and actually, I agree with them on that. You know, I think that Congress is not just a co-equal branch. It is it was intended by the you know, by the framers to be the first branch. And I think Congress has has been it's tragically abdicated so much of its authority and let the executive take so much authority and and I wonder what what Republicans in Congress who have made this such an important issue if that was something they actually cared about or if it was just uh, basically BS that they were using to you know will they have the courage of their convictions what do you think I. This is a this is a tough issue, and I agree with you that that Mitch McConnell is is frequently a lightning rod, not just on the left, but on sort of your uh, your Trump supporting right too. I mean, he he justifiably gets a lot of flack for some of the decisions he's made, although I don't always disagree with him. And this, uh, you know, again, I I reiterate that as somebody who's a little more maybe libertarian, conservative, um, I, I tend to. Um, wince when there's an overreach of executive power. Uh, it comes a little too close to the the monarchy that we were trying so hard to avoid hundreds of years ago. Um, you know, I would say that if there was one thing that I would criticize about Donald Trump other than his tweeting, uh, it would be <laughs> the fact that he does, in my opinion, commit some overreach here. And and I believe it's it is hypocritical when you consider that Republicans in Congress really railed against uh, President Obama for doing exactly the same thing. I would argue more than Donald Trump. I believe that uh, President Obama really took advantage of his uh, executive power in, in a lot of different ways. But we see Donald Trump falling into the same trap. And, and I, I do think that uh, the Republicans in Congress and, you know, certainly people like Mitch McConnell are stuck in between a rock and a hard place because a lot of these people were elected to support President Trump. You know, Republicans elected them or reelected them, put them there, sent them to Washington to back up the president on a lot of these initiatives that people, Republicans in particular, felt very strongly about, like the border wall. And I think a lot of them are really stuck. Like I said, they're looking at reelection. Um, you know, we Republicans have lost the House. Um, you know, they're obviously things 
have started to, you know, slide a little bit. And I think that they are really stuck. You know, do do we keep, do we maintain our integrity in that sense? Do we keep, um, you know, railing against this executive overreach? Or do we support the president no matter what, in which case they'd be accused of playing politics? I don't know that there's a winning scenario there for them. Yeah. You know, but, but I also don't think that the public in general cares a whole lot about balance of power, executive overreach type <laughs> issues, you know, which is why it's easy for them to basically use that when it's convenient and then drop it when it's not. Now, I believe there are some people in Congress who legitimately care about the institution and 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 understand the long-term detriment to that. But for the most part, I think they become so short-term focused that, yeah. you know, it just doesn't mean a whole lot. But I, I will say, I think the House will end up voting on this. And I believe the way it's structured is that then the Senate will have to vote, that McConnell won't be able to stop a vote on that. And I think it will be interesting, number one, to see what the vote is. And then number two, to see the justifications for those, you know, executive overreach, you know, people in the in the GOP who've, you know, been been, you know, worried about this for so long, all of a sudden to say, well, you know, it's it's okay when our guy does it, just not when the other guy does it, you know. So right. Yeah. And that's that's policy. I mean, that that is how Congress and, and a lot of politicians work, pure and simple, is, you know, that that news cycle is uh, short and people have, you know, short term memories and, and, you know, they think about the immediate and what's immediately facing them is 2020. So it'll be interesting, like you said, to see how that transpires. Absolutely. So um, I believe, is it time to move on maybe to the next topic? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so the next thing that we wanted to talk about was um, maybe a, a brighter spot in terms of policy and legislation, uh, the public lands bill, uh, which was recently passed overwhelmingly in the Senate 92 to 8. Um, most critics are saying that it is and most pundits are saying it's a win win for everybody. Uh, and and the, the real question regarding this massive public lands bill uh, that passed is, is conservation sort of the ultimate unifier between Republicans and Democrats? Is this the way that compromise should work? And why aren't we paying more attention to it? What's your take, Mike? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this was a, you know, as we were talking about before we started recording, that it was really kind of sad in a way that this was kind of got lost in the yeah. news cycle because yeah. this is a big deal. I mean, it, it, it protects 1.3 million acres as wilderness. And wilderness is like that super stringent protection where you can't have roads, you can't have vehicles on it. And, and it's got something for all kinds of national monuments. It's got something really for everyone. And the bipartisan nature of it and everyone's saying that it, there's huge bipartisan majorities in the House. The president is behind it. I mean, this is a big deal. And I guess on one point you can say, is it conservation? I don't think it's conservation so much. Uh, Mitch McConnell said, this bill has something for everyone. And that to me is what it's really about is how do you get stuff through? You give everyone a little something. I mean, the hunters got the ability to go through national parks with their weapons and be able to hunt. And, and all these lands are now considered to be uh, okay for hunting unless, you know, unless otherwise said. And so there were a lot of people working together to give everyone a little piece of something they wanted. And, and it seems to me that that used to be how we did a lot more things. And I'm going to bring up a word that's kind of a dirty word to a lot of folks, uh, earmarks. 
You know, <laughs> earmarks used to be a thing, right? I mean, they were banned by, okay, you know, House Republicans back in 2011. That was very popular, the ban, I mean. But even as late as last year, there were a number of folks in the GOP who were talking about bringing back earmarks. In fact, President Trump said, that seems like a pretty good idea. And here's the case where I agree with Donald Trump, mark that down. Uh, and, but Paul Ryan was very much an anti-earmark guy. And, and to me, that's, that's sort of being penny wise and pound foolish. Earmarks have been, for a long time, have been legislative lubricant. We can kind of see that here. Now, what was happening here isn't earmarks per se, but it's kind of like a version of it. I mean, earmarks are when there are specific budget provisions. Well, this kind of works in a similar way. And that's why this passed. And that's what we need more of. I I would agree with you to to a certain extent. I don't agree with you about the earmarks. But then again, I'm a Republican. Uh, and so, you know, I, I believe that that earmarks can be taken advantage of very easily. I think that was kind of the crux of the argument uh, seven or eight years ago. But um, I think. I wanted to comment on what conservatives love about this because I actually I had a conversation with somebody yesterday about this because it it wasn't something that as you mentioned that was up on news feeds and it wasn't making the you know the daily media rounds we were sort of bombarded with news about the budget and Amazon and all the other you know big stories and what I really appreciated about this bill and I know other conservatives feel similarly is that the taxpayers didn't have to foot the bill for this right. this the money was already there. Um, it was actually part of a program that had been uh, that had lapsed, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and that money is just going to be reauthorized. So I, I think that's why conservatives really rallied around this. Um, I think Democrats, from a policy perspective, um, you know, obviously, I think that that they favor anything that you know where land is set aside for wildlife, for habitats, um, you know, for purposes like that. But I think just as as something that's really a touchstone in American culture. I mean, sort of to harken back to our beginnings, you know, the, the, the idea of public lands and national parks and expanding national parks and protecting rivers and wilderness, this is all something that's been around for well over a century. Um, and, and, you know, the United States was the first to embark on it. So this is something that sort of goes back in our history, something that's always united us. And, and like you said, it was, it was a shame that it didn't make more news, that I didn't see it more. Nobody saw it more um, because the person I was talking to had hadn't even heard about it. I had to explain it. And I said, this is a great example of how compromise works, how Republicans got a little something and Democrats got a little something. And we were able to work together. Yeah. You know, I, in fact, as you were saying that I was looking over to my this will sound incredibly geeky, my bust of Teddy Roosevelt, who is probably my oh, all time favorite president. I mean, that's, you know, he was kind of the guy, right? The 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 father. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I mean, this is about in the traditional sense of being conservative to conserve. I mean, and that, you know, right there. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think there was, there is a lot that can unite us in this. And I think that's part of the reason why I got downplayed because stories where Republicans and Democrats get along, you know, that's not conflict and awfulness and so forth. So it's you know, not going to be a big news story, sadly. Um, but I wanted to ask you another thing on the earmarks thing. So let me let me kind of present my case a little bit and get your response to that. If that's okay. Sure. So uh, I did a little digging into this, and, and back in the the last full year for earmarks, which was 2010, according to Citizens Against Government Waste, and they're a pretty anti 
well, government waste group, you know, fairly right of center group, as mm-hmm. the name would suggest, they estimated that earmarks were around $16.5 billion. Now, now, for one thing, obviously, that money wasn't just flushed down sewer grates. Some of that actually went to worthy programs. Maybe not all of it. I mean, there are your bridges to nowhere and things like that that happen. And that's, you know, something that I think you're right to be concerned about. But let's assume that even if all of that money was just flush down drains that they do nothing basically still if it's all waste that's 0.47 percent of the federal budget now what do you get in return for that you get a whole bunch more actually getting done to kind of grease the wheels of the system so i'm not i'm not saying we should waste money to grease the wheels of the system but (laughs) but maybe there's a compromise here. I was thinking about how this could work and address the concerns that I was guessing you would have and, and try to actually make them work. And I was thinking maybe some way to return earmarks, but sort of set a ceiling as a percentage of the budget that earmarks could be to kind of address these things or try to develop you know more transparency with it. But it seems to me that there's got to be a way to bring back what made them worthwhile with and, and, you know, to have some kind of way to make sure that we don't encourage the kind of corruption that in some cases you're absolutely right that earmarks did did lead to. Right. I, I agree with you 100 uh, percent on that, believe it or not. I, I do think that there was a reason why uh, politicians started earmarking these bills, setting aside money. Um, You know, obviously this leads to things like slush funds that are just no good for anybody Um, or, or these useless programs, these, you know, light, light or the light rail trains and and bridges to nowhere and i mean we've certainly had our fair share of them in florida uh in grad school in california i know california is currently you know underwater with a lot of these projects but you know for for every for every project that seems to make the news obviously because you know these stories attract a lot of attention you have people like uh senator Rand paul uh you know drawing attention there are a lot of these programs that are just wasteful and it's clear that there's a lot of corruption there's a lot of back scratching. Somebody knew somebody when they worked at this company. And so, you know, there's a little back scratching going on. And I do agree with you that there that there is a purpose for them. A lot of good programs and a lot of good projects have emerged from earmarking. I don't think they're I mean, just as anything else in politics, are they bad sometimes? Sure. Are they all bad? No. You know, there's never really a black and a white. Everything's sort of a varying shade of gray. So I, I do think that if we were able to set a cap, um, you know, sort of a compromise somewhere in the middle, maybe this could be the new public lands bill, you know, and there would be sort of a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I think the, probably the big problem behind that actually happening is that's one of those things that it's it's hard. The optics of it are really bad, right? Saying we're going to oh, bring yeah. back earmarks. And once you do away with something like that, trying to bring it back is pretty tricky. Just like with, say, something like congressional salaries. I can make a what I think is a really great case that congressional salary should be way higher and that congressional staff salary should be way higher and all, you know, just, but that's a pretty tough case to make on the surface of it to the American public. So, so that's why I don't, unfortunately, I don't see that happening, but I really think it's something that would, that could potentially do a lot of good if it were done right. Right. Well, like you said it, you know, earmark is a dirty word and I'm not sure that, that it's only a dirty word on the right either. I mean, there are a lot, 
people in the middle and on the left who, you know, depending on, again, we go back to politics, but who's in office, who's doing the earmarking, who controls Congress, who controls the House, you know, where, where are these these projects coming from. Republicans tend to kind of stick their fingers in their ears and and ignore when it's a Republican project and, and vice versa on the left. So, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. Uh, hopefully maybe they'll take our advice. Yeah, you know, they really should. I think so. <laughs> Definitely. And um, so, you know, with that in mind, I, uh, I believe that, Mike, you had some Patreon supporters. Yeah, I, I am. I am excited I mean, to, to say that we have some uh, new supporters this week on Patreon. A bunch of them, actually, in the last couple of weeks, because I was off last week. Uh, we have uh, uh, Cass Frosty, who is a new supporter, and Stephen and Bruce and Hayden. And they're all new monthly sustaining supporters on Patreon. So thank you all so much uh, also I, I i forget this is god i'm having a could i could i can't be having senior moments no i'm at middle-aged moments is that a thing i don't know yeah but but anyway todd and Teresa, not too long ago increased their monthly support i can't recall if i mentioned that last time but even if i did i'll thank you again we really appreciate it and also thank you to benji who recently decided to make a big jump in his monthly support to the show and that means a lot to us financially and otherwise, and we really do appreciate it. Um, one, one thing I wanted to mention along with that is when he became a, a new supporter, uh, Hayden wrote, this is the first time in my life that I become a financial supporter of any podcast or any media at all, for that matter. Said, you guys deserve it. I think what you do in providing constructive, realistic, contextualized, yet organic narratives of current issues is unparalleled. What especially impresses me is the quality of work you do, given how small of an operation it seems to be, at least compared to my other favorites like NPR, KCRW, and Potomac Watch. I feel that a, that a contribution to you will go further than to any other podcast. I thought, wow, isn't that, isn't that, that's, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that we, I agree entirely, and it means a lot. So, Hayden, thank you so much. Um, he also asked a question. Uh, he says, uh, do you have any more recommendations for in the weeds political podcasts that address current news and politics? Um, and, you know, I had a couple of things. I just pulled up basically what's in my podcast feeds. Um, and, and I listen to Vox's The Weeds a lot. Now, what troubles me about it is it tends to be almost entirely left of center, but they do some good policy stuff. Um, when Ezra Klein, he has Ezra Klein show, when he has conservative guests on, I think he's almost always worth listening to. When he has liberal guests on, which is most of the time, I generally listen to a few minutes and go, oh God, roll my eyes and move on. Um, and that's speaking as someone who's left of center. And there's also a New York Times uh, podcast called The Argument, where they have people on the left and the right. I think that's uh, that's pretty good as well. I don't know what's in, what's in your feed, uh, Kristen. Uh, anything that just jumps to mind that you would recommend? Oh, you know what I listen to, Mike, I, I listen to things all over the map. I, I, I was telling you earlier, I used to work for a, a large media company. And so I feel like I've kind of seen how the sausage is made and, um, I try to avoid bias where I can, but I think it's unavoidable. Like you said, um, I listen to Ezra Klein. Um, I listen to things as diverse as like Joe Rogan, who, you know, um, I, I find his podcast super entertaining, especially when he talks about, you know, policy issues and politics. Um, I do listen to a lot on the right. I try to balance it. The left, your left, right center, um, obviously is a good one. Um, 
I mean, I love Ben Shapiro. I don't always agree with Ben Shapiro, uh, but I think when you get him when you get him wound up, he's very entertaining as a balance to some of the left leaning podcasts. I listen to a bit of everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I actually I, sh- I should mention kind of on a related note, I'm uh, uh, this April. Yeah, April's coming up. I'm actually presenting a paper at the Midwest Political Science oh. Association. Uh, they have a conference every year, and it's actually going to be about political podcasts and. A big part of that paper is going to be an anal- be an, an analysis of all of like the top 200 politics podcasts and where they stand in terms of ideology, uh, the kind of backgrounds of the hosts, diversity, whether they're bipartisan. Obviously, that's a big thing for us and, and a bunch of other stuff. And so I, I'm throwing that out there to, to let folks know that if that's something you'd be interested in in learning about, I'd be happy to share my results, even you know, send you a copy of, of my, my paper if that's something you want to take a take a look at when it's when it's done i should actually probably start writing it pretty soon here um so yeah i just wanted to throw that out there that's that is amazing i would be interested in reading that i'm sure everybody would be interested in reading that you know it's it's politically the the podcasting world is a bit of a minefield and you know to to sort of avoid the inevitable listening to people who agree with you and living in the echo chamber sometimes you have to reach across the aisle and listen to a little bit of everything to get a a, a a more full view. Absolutely. So um, I, I appreciate that you're doing that. That's yeah. awesome. I think it should be really interesting. So, so yeah, but then, and folks, so again, we appreciate all your support. And if you would like to become a supporter and get a, a shout out and all kinds of extra bonus type stuff, uh, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys, and you can check out all that's available there. And we really do appreciate it. Definitely. So uh, getting back to uh, the hot news of the week, there was quite a bit of it, and we cannot let this episode slip by without talking about uh, Amazon rethinking its New York headquarters that sort of dominated the cycle, especially earlier in the week. But, you know, people have been doing some Monday morning quarterbacking and and talking about that. So um, if if you I guess if you were living under a rock, you you may not have heard that Amazon uh, has decided to pull its New York headquarters. Um, and of course, they're eyeing other sites for their headquarters. But a lot of this had to do with uh, the protests going on in New York. New York is notoriously it's it, it's a it's a famous place for this sort of uh, combat between uh, Democrats and Republicans, unions, protesters, and there was a lot of that going on. And so. Uh, Amazon decided to pull their interest, and there's been quite a bit of backlash. It's uh, been it's been louder and louder as the week has gone on. What's your take, Mike? Oh well, um, I think Amazon handled this badly. First off, um, I think that their strategy of just basically negotiating with just a couple of top politicians and not bothering to talk to anyone in the community, or you know, to, to start with was a bad move. I mean, kind of it's sort of like a basic sort of thing is you talk with people and get buy-in at that level and so that you don't have these kind of problems down the line. But but secondly, the whole the whole kind of beauty pageant sort of approach that Amazon took to this just rubbed me the wrong way. Like we are going to bestow our largesse upon you if you give us enough fealty and gifts and things like that. It just made me want to vomit, honestly. And 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 to me, the biggest part of this is that whole race to the bottom, right? I mean, we've seen this in so many cases where states and localities compete. Amazon took it to just a ridiculous 
sadly ridiculous level. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw any of the videos that some cities that would never have gotten Amazon that made. Yeah. And, and, and on one level, that's humorous. But on the other level, it's, it's communities taking time and effort to do this stuff, resources that could have been spent far better doing almost anything else. And, and Amazon's you know, initial claim that, oh, well, we're considering almost any midsize or above city clearly was bogus, given the fact they went with the, you know, Crystal City, Virginia, right outside of D.C. and New York City. And I mean, just just it's just a sad commentary, I think. And that's bothered me for a long time. And I think it's really what there's a lot of good things about federalism. I am not anti-federalism for many reasons. But one of the bad things about federalism is it creates this sort of destructive competition between communities to give away more and more and more. I think Jersey City was was offering $7 billion. And, and in this case, you know, Amazon made these promises and these corporate folks always make these promises. And the promises are always best case scenario promises that we will, this will create 25,000 jobs. Well, no, wait, it's 30. No, it's 40,000 jobs. Or it, and we will create over, you know, billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars in revenues over this extended period. And of course, all of that is just pie in the sky projections. And then when they don't pan out, what happens? Well, oh, well, whoops, it was a bad deal. And so in a way, I'm glad that the folks from New York basically called their bluff and said, you know, we're not going to put up with this sort of thing and, and, and sent them packing. Now, I know you have a different take on it, right? Of course, of course I do. Did I, did I get um, a little bit on my soapbox there? I mean, I feel pretty passionate about this issue. So, <laughs> Well, as I've mentioned before, uh, I tend to look at fiscal impact. I think it's important. And I do think that um, I, I agree with you on a few things uh, that Amazon handled this very poorly. Their PR was um, horrendous. Um, but I think that the way that this played out, sort of this uh, sort of uh, David and Goliath argument on from the far left, you had people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spearheading this effort to try to take down corporate greed. And I'm not sure that the job creation, um, that the immediate economic impacts and the economic impact in the future, I'm not sure that what that translates to is is corporate greed. Um, I think that for all the subsidies in the world, uh, that you know, you'll never be able to make up for all those jobs lost. I, I know the figure sort of stood at 25,000 jobs, I believe that was the, the kind of agreed upon number on the right and the left. Um, it would have increased the annual salary of many, many New Yorkers, you know, the, the thousands and thousands of New Yorkers. Um, it would have increased the overall employment by as much. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a, there's a valid point to be made on the left and valid point to be made on the right ultimately boils down to is exactly what you were talking about. Do you, you know, do you see this as a tremendous financial loss for, for uh, New York City and for the, the state of New York? I mean, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio really lobbied hard for this for many, many months. And a lot of people saw this as a good thing. And I felt like when the tide started to turn, you know, people obviously that became this whole argument became politicized. It became less an economic thing 
sort of a policy issue and it became very, very political. And of course, Ocasio-Cortez was declaring victory, but then you had people like, um, I read a, a fantastic op-ed by Doug Schoen uh, on Fox News. It was published in a few other places, I think, but he is a, you know, a longtime Democrat. And, and as a New Yorker, he was appalled at, you know, the fact that there were so many New Yorkers willing to give up this financial opportunity. So, I mean, I, I think there's definitely another side to that coin. Yeah, you know, and I think there might be something that we agree on here. Um, let me let me try to put it. In, let me let's try to kind of formulate it. In that, I mean, it seems to me that if if you're a free market conservative, your basic argument is, hey, we should let the market make these decisions and play out, and and, and you know, without the government interfering. But to me, these huge tax deals and giveaways. That amounts to me to major government interference, essentially corporate welfare. And I, I would think that free market conservatives would have a huge problem with that. That's, I, mean, I would argue that's a separate argument from what's the economic impact. I mean, are, are you troubled by government basically, governments basically giving, I mean, is this corporate welfare, do you think? No, uh, I, I would say I'm things like economic opportunity zones, because I, I think time and time again, it, they've been they've been shown to work um, investing in the people in your community, investing in the land and investing in these companies. Um, there, there's tremendous return on your investment with that. And so I do think that a company as big as Amazon, I mean, arguably one of the biggest, if not the biggest company in the country, one of the biggest in the world. I mean, the, the impacts of just just on job creation would have been numerous. So I don't love the idea of, of subsidies, but I understand that, um, you know, giving somebody, giving a company like Amazon tax incentives to come to your state, you know, if that's what lures them there, I think that the return, I think it's all about that return on investment and, and chances are with a company that big, it would be huge. Um, so, you know, does it bother me? It's, it's, that's a complicated answer. I think in theory it does, but I, I always look at the return on that investment. I guess that's what makes me a free market conservative, huh? No, yeah. And I actually agree with that. But it seems to me that what, what a lot of economists have concluded is that, I mean, uh, in, I think in the last, just in the last year, somewhere around uh, $50 billion have been given away in city and state kind of tax incentives or giveaways for corporations. And there are a lot of economists who would say that, at least from the localities and the states, they end up not being very smart policy. And I get sort of the, the, the appeal of it because it doesn't feel like you're giving up much. It's like you're giving up taxes that you wouldn't have gotten if the company didn't locate there in the first place. Right. In exchange right. for what seems like nothing, because it's difficult to measure the costs on public services and infrastructure. And and I think, though, it's it's clear that a lot of these companies, I mean, the, the data shows that a lot of these companies overpromise in terms of the jobs and the revenue that they're going to generate. And whether that's from they're just being too optimistic or whether they know, I'd, I'd say it doesn't matter because it amounts to the same thing. And I, I'm not necessarily fully against this, but I think that we need to be clear on what realistic projections are and if this is a good deal. And too often, it's easy to go the, the kind of short-term allure of this and not be realistic about how many jobs are likely to be created and what the economic impact is. And, what, and these economic impact studies almost invariably, 
vastly overrate the impact because they assume everything's going to go absolutely right. And that just, you know, I, I think about stadium deals, uh, for instance, for this, oh, and that's a big, yeah. I mean, yeah. huge boondoggles. And so yeah. I'm not against this necessarily if there are reasonable, say, independent analysis of what the costs and the benefits are likely to be. But it seems to me that that's just not usually the case, you know? I, I do know, um, and I and I can't help but think of what, when you were talking. I I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a, Flor- a native Floridian, and I live in South Florida, and and um, you know, this is where I work and 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 make my home. And of course, you know, for the last few weeks, and I've been hearing about these politicians, Governor Cuomo. Uh, I think Mayor De Blasio made a somebody made a statement about um, how you know New Yorkers are are flocking to Florida because. And and the sort of the the subtext there is that New York has become increasingly anti-business. The taxes are very high. I believe the second highest is it the second highest income taxes in the country. Um, you know, it's it's become sort of a politically and policy related unfriendly to to companies. And so I think that this just kind of solidifies that. Um, it, and not that I think that Amazon's going to be moving to Florida anytime soon. I don't think that's going to happen. But um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, if they did seek out a more business-friendly climate in another state. Um, and, and I think if nothing else, this just kind of furthers that argument. And from a, you know, if, if I'm being critical of people on the right, um, I believe that conservatives will use that into the future uh, to make political arguments. Um, you know, look at look at these high, this place where there are these high income taxes and it's become increasingly hostile to business. And, you know, you have these left wing protesters that are talking about corporate greed and look at what happened. I mean, they're they're going to declare this, you know, a, a loss. For New York, whereas people who, you know, obviously are objecting to corporate greed are going to declare this a win. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a stalemate. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with you on the whole corporate greed talk. I think that's just sort of, you know, ridiculously inflammatory and so forth, as if as if suddenly somehow in the last 20, 30 years, corporations became greedy, I guess. And before they weren't and people were lovely and wonderful. And to me, that just that human nature is what it is. And what we need to look at are the are the basic structures that, you know, incentives that cause people and corporations to believe the way they do. But trying to appeal to greed or make or be a better person, I think that's just that's just ridiculous and and just is kind of playing to your base and isn't very solutions oriented. So on that, you and I, I think absolutely agree. Oh, yes. I I would agree that we agree. (laughs) So on that note of agreement, I guess we should just quit while we're ahead. What do you say? (laughs) It sounds like we got a lot in this time. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, but we're not done yet exactly because as soon as Kristen and I are done recording this show, we're going to be doing our special supporters only bonus show. So if you are a supporter on Patreon, that should be uh, well, ready for you by the time you uh, by the time you hear this, if I'm doing my job right. Uh, and if you want to be a supporter and get access to that and all the other good stuff, it's patreon.com slash politics guys. Also, subscribing to the show really helps out, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth, always the best advertising we would greatly appreciate. And if you haven't already left a rating or review on iTunes or whatever your podcast app is, that would be great if you could do that, too. That would help us out a lot. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with the new show on Wednesday. We hope to join us.